came on one of April's most brilliant days, a day as sparkling as a newly washed lemon, a day when even the shadows were a melange of blue, orange, and jade, like the shadows that poured from the tipsy brush of Monet. That's a quote from John Beverly Nichols, the English writer, playwright, and composer who wrote more than 60 books and plays. And there he commented on this month that lies ahead of us now. You're listening to WPKN 89.5, community-supported radio streaming to you from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And today is the first Monday of April. The time is noonish, which means this is What's Happening New Haven. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bonnie Likes with engineer Sean Bigler, who lassos all the kicktail tunes that adorn this program. And on today's show, we're going to look into two sets of proverbial arms that encircle Greater New Haven with their collaborative care and support. First up this hour, we'll be speaking with Will Ginsburg, president of the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven. The Community Foundation is one of the oldest and largest in the U.S. and remains the largest grant maker in a 20-town region located in the heart of central Connecticut. The Community Foundation of Greater New Haven is a nonprofit organization, and its mission is to inspire, support, inform, listen to and collaborate with the people and organizations of Greater New Haven to build an ever more connected, inclusive, equitable, and philanthropic community. And the organization's vision is that of a community of expanding opportunity in which all people share a sense of common destiny and have the support and connections needed to build successful lives. Our first guest this hour is the president of the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven. Will Ginsburg is here. Will Ginsburg, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. So, Will, to start things off, would you please tell us about your background? I understand you served the Clinton administration. What position did you hold? Yes, that's right. A uh, long time ago now. I uh went to Washington in 1994 as Assistant Secretary for Economic Development, uh, running an agency called the Economic Development Administration, which is the domestic economic development agency uh, in the U.S. Department of Commerce. I uh, I subsequently served as Chief of Staff in the U.S. Department of Commerce for uh, then-Commerce Secretary Ron Brown. Uh, Secretary Brown, uh, tragically, along with 12 of my colleagues, was killed in a plane crash in Europe in the spring of 1996. Mm. He was actually the first uh, cabinet officer to be killed in the line of duty in 150 years. And uh, and then uh, after that, I spent another year at the Commerce Department and then three years in a regulatory agency called the Federal Housing Finance Board, uh, which is uh, community banking. So uh, so I and I before going to Washington, I had been doing uh, community economic development in the public sector and in the nonprofit sector in New Haven. Um, I was once upon a time was a lawyer many, many years ago. So so I did community economic development and I did uh, at, at, in both public and private sector and community banking as a regulator. And since 2000, I've been doing community philanthropy. So the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven is is very fortunate to that you have wound your path to them. And what strikes me as remarkable about the foundation, Will, as I've perused the website, is the combination of, of skills, longevity, and support all working in unison. Would you please give us an overview of the history and mission of of the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven? And the organization was established way back in 1928. Is that right? That is right. So we're 93 years old, established originally as the New Haven Foundation. The name was changed in 1990. Um, And like other community foundations around the country, there are many. There are probably 800 or so in communities large and small all across America. Uh, we're one of the 40 or 45 largest um, and one of the oldest. Uh, you know, the mission basically is to uh, improve the quality of life uh, in in Greater New Haven. Uh, that's not our mission statement per se, but that's what we're about. And uh, and we we are the community's charitable endowment. Uh, so for 93 years, generous, community spirited. People and families in this community 
have established funds at the Community Foundation uh, to support the causes, the charitable causes that matter most to them. Not only to support them in their uh, during their lives, but to support them after they're gone. So these are uh, permanent charitable funds. Uh, and today, uh, all in, we do a we do a lot we do a lot of things now. But all in, uh, the foundation uh, is close to eight hundred million dollars in assets as of the end of uh, two thousand twenty, which is a, a tribute really to the generosity over over more than nine decades of the people of this community. Uh, we are more than an endowment today. We, 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 do, we, we support the, the charitable sector, the nonprofit sector in many, many ways today. And obviously we've grown in many, many ways, but fundamentally that's the history and that's what we do. So the organization, and if folks are just joining us, I should, I'm going to state the name in full for the sake of context. The Community Foundation for Greater New Haven has so much going on, and one only needs about 15 seconds online to assess that. Perhaps we should just dive right in, Will, to the recent endowment that is quite remarkable, brimming with fresh possibility for Greater New Haven. Would you tell us all about stepping forward, what it is, and how it will enrich the New Haven community? Of course, and thank you for asking. Um, so Stepping Forward is the Foundation's response to both the tremendous challenges and the opportunities that exist in our community of Greater New Haven today. Uh, this really developed uh, in response to the events of the last year. But let me go back a, a year earlier to 2019. In 2019, the Foundation created a new strategic plan, which is called Opportunity and equity that's the name of it that's the focus that's our focus for all the things we do and all the activities we support that's those the, that's where we're focused and of course 2020 the ink was uh, was barely dry on this new strategic plan when COVID came and uh, sort of took over all our lives and everything going on in this community and COVID has uh, it has created tremendous uh tremendous challenges for our community for so many people in our community um uh, health challenges of course economic challenges uh, social challenges and covid has has uh affected people of color in our community and women in our community uh disproportionately uh, uh covid has has widened uh the inequities in our community in a in a fairly dramatic way so um uh, and as I said, equity is one of the core principles with, on which we're operating. So mm -hmm. stepping forward is our attempt to address that. And what we've done, which is completely unprecedented from our standpoint, we've gone much deeper into our endowments to pull out additional resources for spending over the next three years. So the way an endowment works, we take a, a slice off the endowment every year to fund our work in the community. And uh, and. That slice is going to be significantly bigger over the next three years, uh, approximately $15 million bigger, $15 million of additional spending over what we spend every year already, uh, over three years. Um, and uh, and we're going to focus uh, that spending on addressing the impacts of COVID and on advancing racial equity. And I emphasize that because, and I said before, this is about the challenges and the opportunities. The other thing we've seen, not only here in in the New Haven area, but all around the country over the last year, in response to uh, terrible incidents last year of anti-black violence, the murder of George Floyd and other things, and we're seeing it again this year with these terrible events in Atlanta last week against Asian Americans, mm -hmm. directed at Asian Americans. Um, the the country is responding to that, we feel. We feel this is a, this is a moment when, for all the pain that that's causing, uh, this there is an opportunity to make progress on issues of race and racial equity because of the way not just philanthropy is responding but government is responding and and corporations are responding and and the society as a whole seems more committed to addressing ourselves to those issues than perhaps we've been in the past so 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 the purposes of stepping forward and the, the purposes to which we're going to put this extra money is uh as i said is addressing the impacts of covid uh, and advancing racial equity. So I think it would be great if we took a uh, somewhat deeper look at the various inequities uh, so that those who do not have a personal or frontline experience of them can begin to understand why this is such a critical issue, sure, on the national level, but how might 
inequities present themselves in real-time community, um, are we often talking specifically about the realm of healthcare? Well, we, we've certainly seen, I mean, if you look at the data, I don't have it on the tip of my tongue, but, but look at the data around hospitalization, COVID-related, uh, just in the last 12 months, around hospitalizations, around deaths, uh, in more recent months, just in the last you know 60 or 90 days when these vaccines have been available, look at the data in terms of uh, vac- uh, people being vaccinated. Mm-hmm. What you'll see is dramatic and tragic uh, racial disparities. Uh, it's also true in gender, but it's particularly true in race and ethnicity. And if you look at the economic impacts, you see the same things because people of color and women so often are in the frontline jobs that uh, that have that have been hit hardest by the economic impact of COVID. So many small businesses closed. So many, uh, you know, retail businesses uh, and uh, and and uh, childcare businesses and other things closed. And these are these are these are jobs that have traditionally been uh, occupied uh, more uh, by people of color and by women in our society. And the data shows it in terms of unemployment, um, in terms, I think I saw a statistic recently, something like three quarters of the people who've left the workforce since COVID hit a year ago, and it's just a year, are women, uh, and disproportionately women of color. So those are some of the ways in which these disparities that I'm talking about show up. Indeed. And and to just crack the nut of COVID relief a little further, does this pertain to uh direct financial relief for those due to the extended shutdown who've lost their livelihood? Uh, yes, uh, it does. Um, but it, it, and, and certainly the charitable sector has responded that way. Uh, our own resources um, have gone, for example, heavily into, over the last year related to COVID, have gone heavily into uh, to what we call basic needs. So food insecurity, Mm-hmm. You know the the demand, uh, the lines at at uh, at uh, at um, uh, soup kitchens and uh, food distribution centers have grown so much longer uh, this past year. So many more people uh, who have lost their jobs, uh, you know, vulnerable with uh, vulnerable f- uh, food insecurity, and also you know other basic needs like shelter. So so uh, helping people with rent payments. Uh, helping people uh, with with mortgage payments. I mean, there's been a uh, there has been a, a moratorium on eviction, uh, helping people with utility payments and the like. So, so this these are all issues that have uh, grown dramatically more uh, um, worse in the last year, and the charitable sector has uh, has responded to that, uh, and the community foundation. Uh, you know, we funded. Uh, so many agencies across this community to provide these these kinds of services to people in need in Greater New Haven. Yes, and that leads me to I'm wondering what other kinds of nonprofits in Greater New Haven may receive and benefit from stepping forward. And perhaps, sorry, Will, you may not have the list in front of you, but uh, perhaps just the types of, of yeah. Well, yes, the list would be very long because we support sure. hundreds and hundreds of nonprofits Indeed. in this community, and and always have long before stepping forward and long before COVID. Um, you know, in a typical year, or if you include everything we do, we, we'll make, uh, uh, we'll make uh, $30 million or so of grants in a typical year in recent years uh, to, to several thousand uh, grantees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but one of the things we've seen, Bonnie, very interestingly related to COVID specifically, is that whether we're talking food distribution last spring when COVID first hit, or we're talking vaccine distribution this spring, uh, which is the front and center issue at the moment, we've seen a lot of small grassroots organizations, in addition to the large organizations that we've always supported, we've seen small grassroots organizations stepping forward that are trusted uh, in these neighborhoods and with these populations that have been particularly hard hit by COVID. So church groups and others, in in many cases, uh, organizations that haven't provided these services before or that the community foundation hasn't supported before. So last year, somewhere around 25% of our COVID-related grants from our COVID fund that we raised last year um, 
was uh, uh, were two organizations that we had never supported before. And that's because uh, all these organizations had sprung up to provide help to their neighbors uh, uh, during this process. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned, I've been talking about, we've been talking about the distribution side, but a big part mm. of what we do is raising money. So yes. the foundation raises money uh, on, an, uh, on an ongoing basis, unlike, you know, a big, unlike the Ford Foundation or some big foundation that was established, you know, with a, with a, with a big uh, a gift uh, initially and doesn't raise money. Community foundations raise money on an ongoing basis. And, and I have to say our community has responded wonderfully well to to the needs that are out there. Um, you may know that we run something called the Great Give every year, which is a 36-hour uh, online giving extravaganza in the beginning of May every year. And last year, it's always been a big deal. Last year, it raised twice as much money as it ever had in any year before. Um, Fantastic. And, uh, and, and we had, uh, we raised a COVID fund uh, last spring, uh, uh, three uh, over $3 million. So, uh, you know, very quickly. So, so uh, our community is a very generous community, and people responded to the needs that are out there, which is what enabled us to respond to respond to all these agencies that were providing the services that people needed. Yes, and and thank you for that. And that's that's great news. And so that we can connect the dots between the realm of money and how it actually gets channeled into the real world, which you've already done. Can you, Will, estimate the timeline when Greater New Haven will feel notable change in relief from stepping forward specifically? Well, I, I think, you know, we're moving money very quickly. Uh -huh. one, of the things we, one of the things we did last year was actually move up all our timelines. So we used to do our big grant making in the fall. It was all done last year by Memorial Day, and it'll all be done uh, in the first half of this year as well. Um, so, so I, you know, I would answer that question really in two ways. One is, uh, we're raising money and we're moving money out all the time and because the needs are immediate, but we are in endowment as you and I were talking about a few minutes ago. And mm -hmm. the other thing we've, we're doing as part of stepping forward is setting up a new endowment funds, uh, endowment funds, a racial equity fund, a basic needs fund. I was talking about basic needs before and mm -hmm. a civic engagement and civic awareness fund. So, you know, these will be permanent funds nice. uh, to yes. address these issues on a permanent basis. And so so our response, stepping forward, is our response to, uh, to the challenges and opportunities that the community is facing today is both about is about both. It's about both immediate response and continuing to build, as we have been for 93 years, continuing to build our permanent capacity to serve this community out into the indefinite future. And during this strange epoch we're in, do you notice more young uh, nonprofits uh, springing up these days? Well, we, as I said, we have seen a number of, and some of them aren't even nonprofits. They're just, you know, people get together, people in a church, people come together in a neighborhood mm. to provide services. But but this is a very difficult environment for nonprofits. I mean, uh -huh. you know, if you combine the fact that demand for services has gone up dramatically, fundraising events and activities have been curtailed because people can't get together. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, this has, has been a very difficult environment for nonprofits. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's a daunting environment to start a nonprofit organization. One of the things we're most focused on is just providing general operating support for the, for, you know, literally hundreds of nonprofits across our community to sustain them so they can continue to pay their staff and operate and provide their services in uh, in this environment, so um, so it's it's a tough environment to 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 uh, to start a to start a new nonprofit. Yes, it's happening, but it's it's a very difficult environment to do that. Understood, and you know, on a sort of a lighter, warmer note, uh, this is usually an arts program. What's happening, New Haven? So I'm wondering. Uh, just to take a quick look at the arts, Will, yes. such an important touchstone for the soul of New Haven and surrounding areas. How 
how will the foundation intersect with this realm of this loved and respected sector here on out? You know, we, we want to keep our yep. culture alive in spite of all that's going on and all the fast change that's happening all around us. Definitely. And I, I, I'm very glad you asked that question because all my friends in the arts community would be, uh, <laughs> would, be, would be angry with me if we hadn't touched on it. I mean, the Mine community as well. foundation... <laughs> The community foundation has been, you know, going literally going back to the beginning. The first grant uh, that the foundation ever made in 1928 was to the New Haven Symphony Orchestra. So, so our our we have been a major supporter of the arts, uh, you know, from uh, fr- from the beginning. And certainly in my years, my 20 years at the foundation, it's been a major priority. The arts community, particularly the performing arts community, but the museums as well, they've all been hit extremely hard. In fact, mm. you, could, you could say that the art sector has been hit as hard as anyone through this through this pandemic because, of course, you know, people can't gather. People can't, people, the museums are shut. The theaters are shut. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the orchestra's not performing. So, um, so we are very, when I was talking about providing operating support for nonprofits, we're very focused on doing that for the arts and arts institutions, uh, not exclusively, but that's a big part of that. And we're also, you know, we want to bring the racial equity piece uh, and the arts piece together because one of the things that promotes uh, community, that promotes connection between different peoples, that promotes understanding is the arts. The arts have an indispensable role to play and have always played an indispensable role here in this community in doing that. So we actually have a one of the new grant-making programs that we put in place this year as part of all everything we're talking about, Bonnie, is actually uh, a racial healing, racial reconciliation through the arts, mm. and we're looking to and we're looking to fund. Uh, we're probably doing this, uh, you know, several months from now. We're we're still designing the program right now, but um, we're looking to fund arts institutions to to do work in that area too. So, so the arts are very much a part of our thinking, and uh, and need to be a part of everybody's thinking because this has been a particularly difficult period. For arts and cultural institutions. Well, it sounds like you have some wonderful programs going on. Will Ginsburg, it has been a pleasure having you on. And are there any final words you'd like to express to listeners about how they can support and keep in touch with what the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven is and will, will be endeavoring? Uh, well, thank you, Bonnie, for this opportunity. And thank you for that question. I, you know, I would just say, uh, just say this. The, we chose the name Stepping Forward for what we're doing uh, in part because, you know, it's not just about us stepping forward. It's about our whole community stepping forward to address the challenges and meet the opportunities that exist uh, here uh, today. And so uh, we were, you know, I guess my closing message is to, uh, to urge people to do that in whatever way people want to do that. Sure, it can be charitable giving, but it can be it can be lots of other things, too. Um, the needs are out there. The opportunities to build connections are out there. And uh, and I hope people will step forward and take advantage of it. Um, there are lots of ways to do that through the Community Foundation. Our website has lots of information about stepping forward. It's www.cfgnh, Community Foundation Greater New Haven, cfgnh.org. Um, and, uh, and you can, and all our staff contacts are listed there. So, um, you know, I hope people will will uh, will take advantage of the things we're doing. But there are a lot of ways to support your community at a time like this. And as long as as long as everyone's stepping forward, we will get through this as a community. Indeed, beautifully, wonderfully said. Thank you so much for joining us and for all you do for Greater New Haven. And we wish you and the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven all the best in the days, weeks, and years to come. Well, thank you for that wish, Bonnie, and thank you very much for having me on the program tonight, Um, and uh, I really appreciate it, and it's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Greetings to you, listeners and supporters of WPKN 89.5, streaming from Bridgeport, Connecticut. We're so happy you're joining us this hour. This is What's Happening New Haven. I'm Bonnie Likes here with engineer Sean Bigler, and today we are steeping ourselves in formidable examples of who and what types of entities have your best interests at heart as they serve Greater New Haven with their skills. 
and collaborative energy. Our next guest is the CEO of a busy nonprofit with focus on the health and wellness of Greater New Haven and doing so with several locations. Dr. Suzanne Lagarde will be with us momentarily to share the history and services provided by the Fair Haven Clinic. Before she comes on, we'll preface our conversation with a brief peek into the clinic's beginnings. Back in 1971, the Fairhaven Clinic had a humble start seeing patients two evenings a week in a local elementary school and thereafter received a seed grant from the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven, after which the clinic staff started to serve adults and children on a walk-in basis for minor illnesses, immunizations, and family planning services. Soon patients identified Fairhaven their medical home and not just a place for episodic care. Today, the Fairhaven Clinic provides care for multiple generations at over 80,000 office visits in 14 locations. As they grow to serve new families and new communities, they work to put the patient first in everything they do. So now, let's welcome our guest to the show. Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's great to have you with us. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Oh, great. So, Dr. Lagarde, Fairhaven Community Healthcare provides many services to date, and this is so interesting when looking at the impetus of the organization back in 1971 when it took original action in New Haven. Would you give listeners an overview of the clinic's history? Absolutely. So as you point out, this is our 50th anniversary year. So it's a it's a very um, uh, big event for us. Uh, how we will celebrate it remains to be seen, given that we're still dealing with the, uh, the impact of COVID, but it's something that we're very proud of. Uh, we started out back in 1971, literally as a small family planning service. Uh, and uh, interestingly, the precursor to the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven uh, uh, was the funder of Fairhaven with a, with this, uh, with a grant of $5,000 back then. Uh, today, we've grown to where we now uh, employ about 250 people. We serve over 22,000 unique individuals annually. Uh, and we provide a wide breadth of services. Uh, what I like to say is from cradle to grave. So we we have a nurse midwifery program uh, where we actually deliver babies uh, around 100 to 120 a, a year. Uh, we have a robust pediatric program, adolescent program, adult, and all the way through geriatrics. Uh, in addition to that, we provide dental services, uh, integrated behavioral health services, substance use disorder services, vision services, uh, and then, then a whole host of programs uh, with some of the more noteworthy ones being around uh, 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 issues with diabetes and lifestyle issues and how th those impact uh, conditions such as diabetes or asthma. Um, and uh, we are now actually, given the uh, COVID pandemic, really uh, embracing the whole area of telehealth, both in terms of just, um, you know, routine, regular visits done either through a video or an audio vi visual, um, an audio or an audio visual uh, connection. And we've actually started to uh, begin something called a remote patient monitoring program or RPM where we are providing uh, some of our patients with chronic um, uh, chronic complex medical diseases such as diabetes and hypertension. We're providing them with uh, Bluetooth-enabled devices that they can use in their homes, such as blood pressure cuffs, glucometers, scales, and then we get real-time readings uh, of, from these patients in, 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 our, in our health center. So uh, a, a wide range of us, what I would call more traditional services. We also do a, a number of things that I think are rather innovative. For many years, we've partnered with what was formerly called New Haven Farms, is now gathering the harvest. But what we do is, uh, in the again, in the context of dealing with healthy eating, particularly for our diabetic population, every spring we uh, support Last time around, it was around 80 families uh, in, a, in an urban farming program where they uh, work with a farmer one or two nights a week. Uh, it's done in a language that they're comfortable with. It. So either English or Spanish, they learn to till the land. And at the end, and during the time, they also learn about 
what constitutes healthy eating. And at the end of the season, they get to take home uh, the, the fruits of their labors in terms of the produce from uh, from the farm. So a whole host of programs. And um, I think I'll leave it at that because I, if you haven't figured out, I, pr- I probably could go on and on about some of the really uh, exciting things that that are that happen in our health center. Well, we'd love you to, and but uh, before we launch into that a little bit more, I'd love to hear about some other partnerships. The, the farm uh, connection sounds really amazing and s- so great uh, for our modern times right now. Um, but Dr. Lagarde, would you please share some of your professional background leading up to your role as CEO with Fairhaven Community <laughs> Health? So uh, I'm a gastroenterologist by training, uh, and I practice in private practice of gastroenterology here in New Haven for many, many years. Uh, Always had an interest, though, in issues of access to care or lack of access to care. Uh, And what was really a pivotal point for for me was back in, you might recall, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina ravaged the Gulf Coast. And in the aftermath, many communities throughout the country uh, literally traveled down to the Gulf Coast to help in the rebuilding process. I did that uh, in in early 2007. uh, And it was really a transformative uh, experience where I got to witness a lot of really severe poverty, severe healthcare needs uh, in a part of the country that I really uh, knew very little about. So I, I ended up going back a few times uh, ultimately realized that my skill sets would be better used not in building, trying to build houses, but rather in the uh, medical field. Uh, in 2008, got my Mississippi medical license and then for the next five years traveled down to a large federally qualified health center uh, headquartered in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, where every quarter I would go down for a week and I would literally travel amongst their many different sites to provide GI services. Uh, It it made me question uh, because access to specialty care down there was virtually non-existent. Uh, And it made me sort of say, gee, I don't think it's like that back here in New Haven. And when I came back to New Haven, we we did a look at a very informal sort of uh, analysis of patients who had no insurance at the time. What was their access to specialty care? And was really quite shocked to be quite honest to find that it was not i mean it was certainly not of the magnitude that i saw in the south but it was a very significant problem here in new haven i hadn't been aware of it because being part of the system if i ever saw somebody here with who was not insured i always knew who to pick up the phone who to call how to deal with the hospital system to get those patients seen Mm. but back in the south that it was a different situation so that all led to us creating a nonprofit up here called Project Access New Haven, which I did with a, a group of a small group of physicians from the New Haven County Medical Association. We were able to gather uh, literally uh, over a hundred uh, specialists in the Greater New Haven area who were willing to donate services as long as we were able to guarantee that patients would have the other barriers that often prevent patients from getting care. We would ensure that they had the transportation. We would ensure that they had the translation and we would ensure that they could get the labs or the testing that they need. And, and, and that was facilitated through our partnership with the, the then two local hospitals, Yale and St. Raphael's. And that in turn led me to think I really wanted to do more of this kind of work. So in 2012, I, um, I, um, enrolled. I got accepted into the Yale uh, School, School of Management's Executive MBA program, which was a great, uh, literally transformative two years uh, in that program. And midway through the program, I left my private practice. An opportunity presented itself at Fairhaven, where the founder, who had been there for 42 years, retired. Uh, and um, I, in June of 2013, I took that job, and here I am now, eight years later. Wonderful. Some serious boots-on-the-ground work combined with your more formal background. That's that's really a great combination. Um, so, Dr. Lagarde, right before we began this talk with you, we were speaking with Will Ginsburg, president of the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven, and we dove deep into the recent Stepping Forward endowment, which is to provide support for uh, racial inequities and those suffering from the COVID crisis. Would you paint a picture for for listeners of what you might see as a doctor, the way these issues show up and how they're addressed at Fairhaven Healthcare? 
So uh, I believe that all patients, I mean, I know that all patients are warmly welcome to us. The challenge for us is getting them through that front door, right? So um, I'll give you an example. One of the, as we are all looking at, you know, vaccinating for COVID, um, this is a commonly asked question. And my answer, which is to everybody, including you and your listeners, is that I'm not worried about our patients, right? We have about 22,000 patients. I'm not worried about them because I know I can reach them. I know I can talk to them and we are, we are literally reaching them one by one as you know, they become eligible by age uh, in the state of Connecticut. Where my, where my worry really is focused is on what I know to be literally thousands of individuals, probably within a couple of blocks, some of them within a couple of blocks of our facilities who don't come in the door. There's there is a large number of folks of color who are many times immigrants who may or may not be here legally, but nevertheless have fear of, um, you know, somehow uh, being being seen and being and being, you know, cared for that somehow that would that that would uh, threaten their security here in this country. Uh, we know that there are people in severe socioeconomic uh, conditions, and it's reaching that population and convincing them that we can be trusted uh, mm. with what is really one of the most valuable assets any of us has, which is, you know, good health, uh, and that we can be trusted to, to work with them to ensure that, you know, they're not going to be burdened with bills when, you know, they're not going to be, you know, you know, in some ways, um, turned over to the government, uh, that we're going to take good care of them. That's my biggest challenge is, is reaching them. We, you know, lots of efforts are made to do that. And uh, actually COVID has given us in some ways opportunities to do that. But um, it's it's an ongoing challenge to um, bring those folks into our ranks because I know we can help and we can provide them with high quality health care without any kind of major economic burden and in an environment that's uh, caring and trusting. What might be ways someone who lives outside of these concerns directly could offer support? Are there volunteer opportunities with Fairhaven? Or what are the ways that outreach can occur with with uh, a migrant population, say, for example? So I, I, I firmly believe that um, you it really has to come from within. Uh, we can't, and I'm learning, you know, I've been in Fairhaven now eight years and I feel like only recently am I sort of feeling that I am part of the community, that I'm accepted as part of the community. I think it takes a while to to sort of build that kind of trust. And again, I, I'll go back to the COVID example. Um, two weeks ago, I reached, well now three weeks ago, I reached out to, um, uh, a woman in the community who is well known for her uh, community activism and her her prominence within the Hispanic community. And I said, this is Kika Matos. And I said, Kika, we, you know, we really need to get to a lot of these people. They need to get vaccinated. We need to talk with them. We have to address their questions. We have to, you know, you know, make them feel safe with uh, accepting the vaccine and why it's so important for their health and their family's health. And um, Kika and her connections within the community was able to mobilize the community to, and and, and a week ago last Saturday, we launched a, a campaign called Vaccinate Fair Haven. And in that campaign, as of today, there are almost 300 volunteers, but these are people for the most part who are from within the Fair Haven community. And the, the, the purpose of the campaign, the ultimate purpose is to knock on literally all 5,642 doors in the Fairhaven neighborhood. And we are doing that. They are doing that. And and in some cases, in many instances, a lot of these folks don't speak English, but they are the neighbors of the people who we want to reach, right? They are, they are the neighbors. They are the people running the businesses where they get their food or where they, they shop for, you know, what, what have you. And we are seeing a profound outpouring of response to this. There's a tremendous interest uh, and we're signing up, you know, many, many people uh, to get vaccinated, which is very exciting. And, and, and it's 
shown me, and I'm and I've been in this business for a while now, it's shown me the power of community. Uh, I, I really believe that had we brought in an army of 300 volunteers from somewhere else and knocked on the doors, it would have had nowhere near the impact that this has had in the past few weeks. And which which of the vaccines is the clinic using? So we have no control over that. We, ah. we use we use what what we get. Um, so right now we have a combination of either Moderna or Johnson and Johnson. Uh, but it it really is um, it's more how much do we get, not so much which we get. Right? We're always we're always asking for more because we can use more. Uh, but at, we're not in it as a state or as a country at a point where uh, supply supply exceeds demand. So we get you know we get we take what we get. I see. Do you see Fairhaven Community Healthcare ever evolving? Is there a working vision that the organization is moving toward? Or is this very formidable collection of providers and services, has it reached a kind of paragon for now? So it's interesting that you asked because literally one minute before I got on this call with you, I was in a strategic planning uh, group uh, that we are currently engaged in. for those who know Fairhaven, you will know that we uh, current uh, we have multiple sites uh, throughout uh, New Haven as well as in East Haven, uh, in the East Haven area along the shore area. Uh, but our main site uh, is on Grand Avenue, uh, and it consists literally of three 100-plus-year-old Victorian houses that are liter- that have literally been interconnected. Um, I can assure you, although it's been kitted out to provide care. We have 32 exam rooms. We do a lot there, but it's certainly not um, as optimal a space as it could be for the delivery of 21st century medical care. So one of the very big uh, uh, issues that uh, our management team, actually our management team, our staff, our community, our board are currently undertaking and actually with support from the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven is that we are looking strategically at where what will Fairhaven look like in, in, in another three to five years? What do we want it to look like? What is the demand? How can we best serve our community? So that conversation is very, very active and very much in front of us at this time. Maybe we can we can get together in another six or eight months and I'll, I can share with you the outcomes of that strategic plan. But right now, um, this is something and we're trying to get input from a whole range of stakeholders, as I said, from the board down to uh, our staff, to our community, to our patients, to our uh, collaborators in the community and beyond. And as a physician and a leader of Fairhaven, do you find it challenging to keep up with our ever-changing, ever-so-quick technology uh, in the medical industry these days? So I I don't know that I find it difficult to keep up with the technology. What I find that I need to ask myself repeatedly is what what innovation or what strategy do we want to pursue that is really going to have an impact on our patient's life? And once I decide on that, clearly, how can technology help me? I mean, technology can help so many ways and so many things, but I think that but figuring out the technology piece is almost the easier part. It's more really trying to anticipate what what the needs will be and how to best address those needs, you know, going forward. And and then and then making decisions about how do you make technology support those visions. And does Fairhaven uh, engage telemedicine? Currently? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Like pretty much every health center, health facility last March, we pivoted on a dime, right? Because prior to that, although telemedicine was always um, an obvious um, goal uh, because it's been successfully implemented in a lot of areas in the country, uh, pre-COVID, particularly rural areas. Yes. Um, but we pivoted very quickly, as did many others in March. Uh, we um, reached a peak of, of telemedicine probably in the summer when more than half of all of visits were by telemedicine. Uh, that has decreased some. It's interesting. We are finding that patients, many patients, not all, but many patients uh, do prefer at least some of their visits to be in person. And we're at a, at a point where we, certainly we can accommodate those requests. I would say that right now, I think the last figure I saw was that overall, somewhere between 
20 and 30 percent of our visits are telemedicine but i would say that the vast majority of those are behavioral health which lead lends itself very very easily to telemedicine visits um and telehealth is you know i just want to point out is is a broad term uh, we tend to think of it as, you know, sitting in front of a Zoom screen and talking to your provider. And certainly that's a piece of it. But as I mentioned earlier, it, it's also things like remote patient monitoring, where we have monitors in people's homes and we we, we get their blood pressure readings and their glucose readings in real time, uh, where we have what I call asynchronous consultations, right, where we can electronically uh, get information from specialists and specialists are serving as consultants to the provider, uh, sparing the patient the need to go visit a specialist in many instances, not in all instances, but it's another, you know, another um, use of technology uh, to improve our our ability to to provide access to care for our patients. Uh, Another example is retinopathy, right? So diabetics have a higher incidence of, of changes in the backs of their eyes called retinopathy. Mm. Uh, there are now mobile cameras and which we of which we have a couple, which our nurses can take pictures of our diabetics retina in the clinical setting. And then that gets sent to an ophthalmologist uh, electronically who can read it and make it recommendations as to what has to happen. So that I think technology touches us in so many ways and, and, and it's only going to ex- increase as we go forward. And would you say that uh, chronic illness such as diabetes has spiked in the last decade? You know, I don't know that it's spiked. I think there's no question that we're seeing an increased incidence of diabetes broadly, uh, perhaps related to people also um, maybe not having as uh, the best diets or, you know, they're not having ideal body weights. Uh, but I think we're become, we certainly without question have become much more aware of uh, its existence and its, 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 um, uh, prevalence and people are being di- diagnosed mm-hmm. much more early. Mm-hmm. So whereas 10 or 20 years ago, maybe a diabetic was not diagnosed until they presented with foot pain or, you know, a neuropathy. Uh, whereas nowadays people are screened starting at a very early age. And we know certainly that in the um, uh, population that we serve, which is a largely a lot, uh, a Hispanic population, uh, the incidence of diabetes is, uh, you know, on the order of twice that seen in the Caucasian population. So, you know, we, we, we certainly see a lot of it in the in the people we serve. Dr. Suzanne Lagarde, before we wrap our conversation up, are there final thoughts you'd like to share with listeners? And perhaps if you would offer the website information to find Fairhaven Community Healthcare online as well? Absolutely. I, I think uh, I'd like to close with maybe an upbeat note, which is that we've all been through a, a fairly difficult year. I don't think anybody would deny that. But I do think it, it is, um, there are also some positives that I think we can cull from the experience. Uh, speaking as uh, the CEO at Fairhaven, I can say that it's brought us closer to our community. We've gotten to know more of them, know more of their needs. We've gotten to meet their needs by getting more engaged in uh, food, uh, in, you know, addressing food insecurity, uh, in our testing for COVID, in our vaccinations for COVID, in, in just our general outreach into the community. And, and I'll just reference back to the um, event that I referenced earlier, which was this uh, literally grassroots community-based outreach into the Fairhaven community where neighbor is visiting neighbor and encouraging, uh, you know, education about COVID and the importance of vaccination and literally uh, when necessary, bringing uh, uh, their neighbors to get vaccinated. And it's been thus far enormously successful and um, I just guess I guess I just want to end on a positive note to say that I you know I think we're we're coming out of a, a you know a difficult year but that the uh, uh, the positives of the year are are present as well and so I I just would like to share share that fact with your listeners and absolutely anybody can uh, come to our website it's www.fhchc.org that's Fairhaven Community Health Care, so fhchc.org. 
Dr. Lagarde, we thank you so much for being a guest on the show today, and we also thank you for your outstanding attention to the health of Greater New Haven. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you. Bye-bye. You are with WPKN 89.5 FM, and this has been What's Happening New Haven with Bonnie Likes and Sean Bigler. We thank both of our guests from the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven and the Fair Haven Clinic for being with us this hour, and we are very happy that you all are out there too. We look forward to welcoming the next month of May with another edition of the show. So until then, maybe you can reintroduce yourself to your garden, eat a little brunch on the patio, or roll down the window in the car on one of our warmer days. So until then, take good care and keep your spirits up. Bye for now. the story.